case you didn't notice, it is Communion Sunday this morning, and so I'm taking a break from the book of Acts, and we're going to consider a message that uh, uh, I actually learned some new stuff as I studied this, as far as the, the cohesion between Scripture. It's incredible. I'd never seen this before. We're going to look at the cross, as the title says there, in darkness and in light, and what I mean by that is the, the cross while Jesus was suffering up to the point of death, and the cross looking back after his resurrection. And uh, primarily we're going to be in Psalm 22, but uh, we're going to use some other scriptures as well. So turn, go and open up to Psalm 22. As you're turning there, I want to read what Paul said to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul said, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. For he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Many theologians believe that that little portion of Scripture was, was literally the earliest form of Christian teaching making its way through the churches. As they tried to summarize in short little statements doctrinal things for the church to remember, that's one of the first and early ones that Paul Quoted that had circulated through the churches by the time he quoted it. And no greater confession and mystery is the fact that Christ was manifested in the flesh. It's a mystery that doesn't contradict human reason, but it certainly goes beyond our reason to comprehend. And it will always. It's going to be one of those teachings of the church that always is mysterious because our, our reason, our understanding will never be able to penetrate the duality of, of deity and humanity in the one person of Jesus. Further is the greatest and mysterious statement, I believe, made by Christ himself. When he said, hanging on that cross, Psalm 22:1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe this is perhaps the most mysterious statement in all scripture. The cry itself was well known to the Jews. In fact, when Jews would suffer, they would utter this as a prayer. They'd just repeat that, that verse over and over and over. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is why when Jesus said it on the cross, some immediately thought, oh, he's calling for Elijah. But the cry itself allows us to listen into something private going on, a, a transaction, if you will, happening between Jesus the Son and God the Father. So we know something's happening in this time. With Jesus on the cross crying out, Why have you forsaken me, Father? But the statement itself prohibits us from going any further. We know this is by design, and I'm going to explain that at the end of my sermon. We know there's an element to this statement of being forsaken by God we will never know. Never. It's powerful to think about that. Because it's something that Jesus did know. And it's not a knowledge that is simply doctrinal or analytical. It's an experiential kind of knowledge. We will never understand it. And so we can know what this means doctrinally. For instance, we know, as Paul said, that Christ became sin for us. Doctrinally, we understand that unless Christ had become sin, the substitute for sin... We'd have no salvation. 
Because that was the penalty for sin. Death had to be paid. And Christ paid it. But this will forever remain a mystery to us. Because we'll never experience being forsaken. Thankfully. Psalm 22 is what Jesus quoted as I said there. It's an incredible... That psalm is an incredible exposition of the suffering of Christ to come and the reward and glories that would follow. In fact, many commentators, and this is where I borrowed my title from, have noticed in Psalm 22 a twofold division of that psalm. Verses 1 through 21 is the cross in darkness, and verses 22 through 31 is the cross in light. And so I want to read through this psalm. This is going to be a short sermon. But I want to read through the psalm and make a few remarks as we partake of this, because this is, this is powerful. So turn to Psalm 22.1 if you're not there. And let's read. My God, my God, verse 1 says, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel and in your fathers in you our fathers trusted they trusted and you delivered them to you they cried and they were rescued and you they trusted and they were not put to shame but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people all who see me mock me they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the Lord let him deliver him let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare at me and gloat, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. Those first 21 verses, if you read it, again on your own time for chance, read it in light of the cross in darkness. All the suffering. Now certainly this has its historical setting. Okay, with the author of the psalm. And he's experiencing some kind of trial. Some kind of suffering. That he himself is writing about. But it also holds prophetic. Future looking meaning for our Christ. And very clearly so. It speaks about powerfully. The crucifixion 600-700 years before crucifixion was ever invented. His hands and feet had been pierced. All of his bones are out of joint. Many passages in this psalm are clearly depicted in Christ's suffering on the cross. What's going to follow, though, in verses 22 through 31 is the backward-looking view. He's suffered. He's endured. 
And now there's the triumph, the cross and light. So let's read that, verse 22 and following. I will tell you of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship, earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. You see the allusion to resurrection there, right? You go down to the dust, but you will be bowing before the Lord living. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. I wish we had time to really dig into this psalm. In fact, there's one old pastor I have his book where he literally makes a sermon of 20 to 30 pages each out of each verse of this psalm. The depth here is incredible and it's worth studying in, in, in depth, but we're not going to this morning. I want to cross-reference, keep your finger here in Psalm 21, or 22 rather. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. It's a familiar passage to you. where we usually go to to read from the scriptures when we partake of communion. This is what Paul lays out for us in verse 23 through 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul wrote this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you see there, I highlighted, there's two times that Paul, or the Lord rather, revealed that partaking of communion is a remembrance for us. We partake of the bread to remember his broken body. We partake of the wine to remember his shed blood. And that all has to deal with his suffering and his death. The payment and the transaction for sin that was going on on the cross. Leading to his statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it was the judgment of sin that led to that broken fellowship between the father and the son for the first time in eternity. And it's a mystery to us. We don't understand it. But remembering the torn body and the shed blood of Christ is the dark side of the cross. It's gruesome. It's shameful. It's humiliating. It's painful to remember. And it should be. Because it brings to light the seriousness 
of what the gospel is dealing with. It's not happy-go-lucky all the time. The cross has a dark side to it, and it is not fun to consider. It was gruesome, shameful, humiliating, and painful, both for him, who knew no sin, and for us, who did, because he paid it willingly. It was the price of our salvation, and unless he'd gone through that, no salvation could be had. There was no other way. So communion, double emphasis in communion is given to remembering as opposed to proclaiming. It's interesting when you read the Gospels and consider this dark side of the cross, the Gospels actually tell us that it was literally dark as well. In the Gospel of Matthew, verse 27 Here's what Matthew wrote. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And it was after, right after that period of darkness covering the land that Jesus proclaimed that dark and mysterious cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you just stop and let these truths begin to penetrate your heart, penetrate your mind, and remember what's going on, it, it leaves us astounded. It leaves us in an unsettled place. Because we will never fully grasp how painful this was. It's a mystery of mysteries. It's a terror of terrors to be forsaken by God. In fact, Hebrews would say that's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet for us, the cross has become the blessing of blessings. What a mystery. The greatest tragedy turned into the greatest of blessings. And he, in fact, Hebrews would go on to say that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. So as a whole, we remember twice what happened. That leads to the proclamation of his death until he comes. Notice, though, as the text indicates, his death. Some commentators actually translate this, his dying. Because he didn't stay dead. He was dead, but he's coming back, implying he's not dead anymore. He's alive, and we believe this. Death was the means to his glory and resurrection, and it is our means to share in that glory and resurrection with him. If we die with him, Paul would say, we will also live with him. And so the proclamation follows upon his victory over the grave. John said of him that he who was dead and is alive forevermore in Revelation. This proclamation captures the cross in its light. In the second half of Psalm 22, we will proclaim his victory, his righteousness to all generations. The veil has been torn and we have access to God. We just sang that song. What a beautiful name it is. I want to read for you again what the bridge says because it's powerful. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring the praise of your glory for you raised to life again. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name. Above all names. That's the power of the cross. Following the dark side of it. 
It's a powerful song. It's a powerful truth that we capture and we remember and proclaim today. So Psalm 22, when we look at those, that double emphasis in 1 Corinthians of remember, remember, and proclaim, this is the truth I learned this week. Going back to Psalm 22, we find that same emphasis. Look at it with me in verse 27. Psalm 22, all the earth, all the ends of the earth shall what? Remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship. Before you look at verse 31, the emphasis of proclaiming. They shall come and what? Proclaim his righteousness to people not yet born. It's everywhere in scripture. There's a remembrance and there's a proclamation. And what's interesting is just as in 1 Corinthians, two-thirds of the admon admonitions were to remember his death and then proclaim it. So here, if you look at the verses, two-thirds of the verses are talking about the cross and darkness. One-third are talking about it in light, which is what we proclaim. Interesting correlation. We declare that the grave could not hold him. Why? Because Scripture says he was righteous. This is what verse 31 says we're proclaiming. He paid the penalty of death not because he was guilty, but because he was a substitute. And because there was no stain in him whatsoever, death could not hold him. His righteousness, by his righteousness, he was resurrected in the power of God. God the Father himself testified that he would not allow his soul to be abandoned to Sheol. His was a payment as a substitute, not of his own guilt. The home, the grave being the home of sin and death. So we proclaim his death because his death was the means of our forgiveness. And his righteousness is the means of our justification. So we proclaim it. Christ forsaken means that the promise to us has been made sure. So why... I started out talking about why will we never understand that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God had made a promise. Hebrews 13, 5 quotes it. It's actually out of Joshua and several other places. But God's promise to us said this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But do you realize that if we stayed under the law, we would have been separated forever? Because the law has charges against us. We are guilty. And we will be separated. God's promise to us is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How can that be reconciled? Through the cross. The payment was made. Christ rose from the grave. He was forsaken by the Father. Why? So that the promise to us can be made sure. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So twice as much as we are told to remember his death... That death must move us. That remembrance, that influence upon us must change us. And we will follow in proclamation because we are His. We have been ransomed. We have been bought. His death and His resurrection reveals something else about that mysterious proclamation. God's great, 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 great love for us. The mystery of it all that he would do it for us. So given under the old covenant, that promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us could only be a reality by means 
of a new covenant. The law couldn't do it. But the covenant in the blood of Christ is payment for sin and deliverance from its penalty could. So he did it. Consequently, we can follow Paul in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He says this, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us because the cross of darkness and the cross of light, the finished work of Christ, has sealed our victory. And that's what we're remembering. Communion is a somber moment. There should be a somberness to remembering this that's built into it, but there should be a celebration and a proclamation because his death was not final. He was dead, but not anymore. And we proclaim his righteousness to all the nations. And we are safe with Christ. So we're going to partake in communion. If you haven't partaken in communion here, um, it's a self-serve table. So you come when you're ready. But we will open up just now a time of prayer where you go before the Lord and uh, remember this. Spend twice as much time remembering as you do proclaiming. Because that's where your proclamation will be powerful. When those truths of his torn body and shed blood penetrate your heart. So take some time now to do that. When you're ready, come when you're ready.